Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode, we'll be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners, and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Dr. George Felicianos in this episode. George is Professor in the School of Education and Technology at Royal Roads University, and he has a rich background in research and professional recognition. George's work spans multiple contexts to do with online education. I'm talking with Dr. George Valetzianos, Professor in the School of Education and Technology at Royal Roads University in British Columbia. Among many distinguishing achievements, George is Canada Research Chair in Innovative Learning and Technology, and he holds the Commonwealth of Learning Chair in Flexible Learning. His impressive research history includes six books and more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters and reports across a range of online educational issues. George, it's great to be talking with you. Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate uh, you inviting me. I know, very good for us. Uh, can we start, George, with a brief overview of your career and publications? Sure, we can do that, Mark. Uh, before I start, I want to acknowledge that I live in Victoria, BC, on the traditional lands of the Kwasapsum and Lekwungen ancestors and families. And I've been in Canada for about eight years now. But I started my career at the University of Minnesota as a PhD student. And there I spent most of my time trying to answer the question of what is it like for students to interact with pedagogical agents? And pedagogical agents are these sort of rudimentary artificial intelligence characters. So I was basically trying to figure out ways to improve teaching and learning when pedagogical agents were involved in you know, multimedia learning environments. Um, I was really drawn to this sort of concept of people interacting with computers and computers being able to respond in in different ways to them. Um, I think that sort of desire to understand this human-computer interaction aspect of teaching and learning has carried through in my work uh, since then. But after receiving my PhD, I moved to the University of Manchester in the UK around 2008. And at that time, it's when sort of the social web and social media sort of were coming into existence and were becoming more prevalent um, in our world and in teaching and learning environments. And carrying through sort of that concept of interacting with computers, I became interested in how social media was being integrated in our scholarly practices, especially in how academics were using them. Um, so I started thinking about how does scholarship sort of interact with social media, how does scholarship interact with the notion of the participatory web I was only in Manchester for about a year and a half, and then I moved to the University of Texas at Austin. And there I continued studying this topic and developed the concept of, uh, of network participatory scholarship. Uh, and this was essentially the concept of how does social media change or improve or interact with scholarship, but also the question of how does our scholarship change or shape the ways that we use social media. Mm. So it was this this idea of, uh, you know, not only the technology impacting the practice, but the practice shaping the technology, but specifically for our scholarly practices, right? So when we try to 
sort of recruit people to participate in research studies or when we try to disseminate our scholarship via the web. And again, I was still you know, interested in the idea of people's experiences, right? How do people experience uh, social media? How does that experience change the ways that they think about their scholarship? How does that experience perhaps change the ways that they try to reach to different audiences and so on? So not just academics, but say journalists, the general public and so on. Because I'm in, you know, and have been in schools of education, some of the primary audiences that I think about are you know, teachers, faculty members, so practitioners, right? And practitioners who might not necessarily read the latest uh, journal issue or the latest research. So some of the concerns of people who are in faculties of education are to, you know, share some of the knowledge that they're generating, some of the insights that they are generating, share those insights with people who may not necessarily be reading uh, the primary literature. Um, so social media came at a time when um, this idea, I guess, of knowledge mobilization, knowledge sharing outside of the walls of the academy was also gaining a, a bit of a, a moment, I guess. Mm. Um, so I moved to Canada in 2013 and I've been at Railroads University since then. And I've continued with sort of these themes that I identified a few moments ago. But essentially, I'm studying how and why social media interact with scholarship, how scholarship interacts with social media, which eventually led to some interesting, I guess, work around the problems, some of the problems that my colleagues and I were seeing in this space. So, for example, we've done a series of studies on the problem of harassment and how academics and other knowledge workers um, are harassed when they are online. Uh, how they respond to it, what sort of support structures um, universities provide to them or, or the lack of support structures, um, how people cope with this problem, right? And, and I guess that's one, that's one aspect of my work, sort of trying to figure out what problems exist in our practice with technology in online learning and think about how to address those problems, either through uses of different technologies and most frequently with uh, different processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, you've been blogging for some time too, haven't you? And you, you remain an active blogger today. I have, yeah. I was introduced to blogging around 2007 and, you know, it's I was doing it more actively in the past. Uh, now I try to schedule a bit of a time here and there to uh, write a bit on my blog because I do find it really helpful to you know, use that space as a space of sharing some rough early ideas uh, and see how they land with people. And I, I find that myself, I, I clarify my thinking by writing, uh, and that's a space to do that. Excellent. So, George, I mentioned earlier uh, you have over more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters and reports. There's a fantastic quantity there, but there's also a fantastic uh, range of of subject area. Are you able to give us uh, some idea of the ideas and themes your work has provided to date that you sense are still pertinent for us today? Yeah, so I think there's maybe four or five themes that are present in in this work. I think a central one is the idea that to improve education, to improve teaching and learning, we um, faculty institutions need a greater understanding of people's experiences in online teaching and learning. 
And by greater understanding of people's experiences, I guess I mean we need to um, sort of understand the student um, worldview and the student sort of experience outside of the teaching and learning environment that we construct for them, right? We need to understand what our students um, are aspiring to achieve, what their challenges are in their day-to-day -day life, because when they come to university, they're not just students, right? They're people. And as people, they have uh, challenges that they face in their day-to-day -day lives that impact the ways that they participate in the learning experiences that we craft for them. Um, so by understanding our students better, um, I believe that we can develop better learning experiences for them. So for instance, you know, figuring out you know, think of students at my university right now, or if you think of, you know, teachers who are practicing teachers that are earning their master's degree, there's very specific times that they can study, right? Like it might be after work, it might be after they feed their children um, or after, you know, they put uh, their kids to sleep. So we have that understanding going in, then we're able to design better learning experiences that accommodate their life outside of the university. Other themes that are in this work are sort of the notion of inequities in digital participation. So the idea that some people are better able to participate and sort of exploit the technologies that we're providing for them for teaching and learning or for scholarly dissemination. And by identifying those inequities, we might be able to develop better systems to enable more people to uh, benefit a common theme, another common theme in my work is the idea of methodological pluralism, understanding teaching and learning. So I've used anything from large-scale surveys to ethnography to small-scale interviews to sort of understand um, various practices and there's aspects of teaching and learning. I think that's really beneficial. I think only using the methods that we were taught or that we're accustomed to uh, does a disservice to our scholarly work. If we're trying to identify and solve problems, say the lack of affordability in pursuing education, then we might be able to you know, attack that problem through various angles. And one way to attack that problem through various angles is to sort of explore that problem through various means. It might mean, you know, large-scale analysis of big data, or it might mean, you know, talking to students and having them create diaries of their day-to-day -day sort of work and figuring out, you know, where the areas are where we can intervene. Yeah. And beyond that, I guess a more recent theme in this work has been the idea that we seem to be placing much of the onus on improving teaching and learning on and online learning in particular on the individual sort of like the individual instructor or the individual student um, and rather than the system that they're part of so some of my work recently has tried to you know sort of push back on this notion that that the majority of our work should be focused on the individual instead it should try and focus on improving the system that the individual you know exists and participates in so a simple example, improving admissions processes at the institution, improving the supports that we provide to faculty to teach better, rather than um, asking individuals to, say, pursue professional development uh, themselves.
Mm. So organizational improvement rather than the individual improvement. Yeah, Changing yeah. Context. Yeah. Yeah, and much of instructional design, which is where I've sort of started my uh, career in, and where I'm, you know, spending some more time in recently as well, sort of focuses on that individual. Even though there are aspects of instructional design that focus on sort of organizational improvement, um, for some reason there is sort of this pull, or uh, at least people navigate towards sort of individual solutions. I think the problems that we're increasingly facing in education and society are sort of systemic problems. Mm -hmm. um, and there's much, you know, much literature on this in, in other fields um, that are really valuable to education, like in sociology uh, and so on. Mm, excellent. George, you mentioned um, using new methods. Uh, is there a particular method that you've used in your own research which you're particularly proud of, one that might uh, point the direction for uh, more research opportunities for others? That's a great question. Um, one approach that I'm exploring recently that I haven't applied yet is sort of speculative methods and specifically the story completion approach. And this is the approach where you ask individuals to complete, uh, sort of to respond to a prompt. So the prompt might be it's 2035 and I'm sitting in my classroom. I start to teach and, and you, you know, so the prompt ends there. And the idea is to you know, encourage, say, faculty members in this case or teachers um, to sort of describe the learning environment and describe their students and describe sort of access to various technologies that they have or various things that they want to try in their classroom. And through that, figure out, you know, perhaps their anxieties about the future, the issues that we need to maybe be focusing on right now. So, you know, this wouldn't be a method to sort of navel gaze, right? But it would be a method to get people to talk about their anxieties about the present, uh, and about their hopes, perhaps about the future by writing about the future. Um, and there's something, I think there's something creative and unique there that might allow us to um, to think about the problems and, uh, and issues that we have right now um, in sort of a different way. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I was very impressed too by uh, your earlier comments related to, uh, I think, Noel's andragogy uh, sprang to mind uh, about understanding the learner and their context and, and them as adults. Uh, that's no doubt something that really informs your practice as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple of years ago, I was working on my book, Learning Online, and and I started working on that book um, thinking that uh, that book would be about massive open online courses. It, it didn't end up being about massive open online courses, yeah. <laughs> but but a lot of um, of the work there was sort of guided by this idea that would provide these courses to people, we provide, you know, abundant content, um, as Martin Waller would say to people, and then try and figure out what it is that they do with it. And as I was looking more into MOOCs and I was spending time enrolled in courses and sort of exploring and talking to people, um, you know, I came to realize that so people's educational experiences are sort of a subset of their larger lives, right? And and people have talked about this, as you mentioned, you know, using andragogy principles to 
um, to develop learning environments. And I guess that was a moment of clarity for me into, you know, thinking beyond the learning environment. So it's now uh, end of 2021. Um, the world is still reeling, of course, from COVID. There's been various lockdowns and a lot of disruption to educational systems. And you have written about these uh, things too in your, your more recent work. Uh, but what are some of the observations about online learning and education at the present time? Not necessarily related to um, emergency remote teaching, but just any insight you might have in terms of how you see the online space at the moment. One, I guess, really interesting aspect for me of in, in this point in time that we find ourselves in, is this idea that online learning seems to be normal right now. Yeah. So if we're at a point where it's nothing out of the norm or unfamiliar, um, the majority of people have participated in online courses, and if they haven't, they've experienced learning online through sort of informal means, right? And the simple example I like to give is you know, you have a leaky faucet and you're not handy. I'm not handy. So, you know, when there's a leaky faucet at uh, where I live, I'm going to go on YouTube, right? And try and figure out how to fix it before spending $150 to get a plumber here to, you know, spend two minutes on my faucet. So, you know, what that says to me is that we need to start treating um, online learning, not necessarily as a foreign concept, but recognize that a lot of people have had experience with it and that it serves a lot of people um, and that it serves people in sort of different ways and that in-person education doesn't necessarily do that and that it doesn't need to. In-person education can be as inequitable as you know, the inequitable forms of online learning that lots of us talk about. Yeah. And I think that over the last 20 months of the pandemic, many people have come to the realization that there's much value to considering the role of uh, online learning in their institutions. And I sort of wish that we sort of stop universalizing modalities uh, and stop thinking about one or the other, but instead um, sort of focus on thinking about how sort of who benefits by particular modalities and who is left unserved. It might be the case that there are certain instances where, you know, in-person education um, and so the sort of design that we wrap around it is better for particular groups or particular communities. Um, and that might be the best approach to adopt. It might be that online learning um, is better in some settings, and that's sort of the approach that we need to take. Um, sort of, so to me, sort of this question of, you know, how can we serve people regardless of modality uh, is the important question to ask. Mm. I think a couple of other observations around this time, I think you nailed one of them when you mentioned this idea of sort of conflating online learning and emergency remote learning. I think we need to do some education around that idea that, you know, what many people have went through over these past 20 uh, months uh, since the start of the pandemic has been emergency remote and learning and teaching and there are differences with yeah. you know the sort of pre-planned thoughtful digital from the ground up learning and teaching approach that online learning sort of is known for and aspires uh, to be 
the, I think the last thing that I want to mention is that I think that there's an exciting time to be um, to be doing work in online learning, to be participating, to be a practitioner in in education, uh, because there's there's a lot of room for improvement. I think there's an appetite for improvement uh, by institutions, by governments, and, and I think there's a lot of work that we can do to generally improve the delivery and the design and development of education for our students and for our citizens. Um, I think it's it's a vibrant field to be in, and um, I'm excited to be here at this time, and I hope others are excited too. Mm, absolutely, yeah, I certainly am. I've been really enjoying the um, online education ride over the past uh, two decades. Uh, so, George, I think that leads quite nicely into the next question, which is the research you'd most like to see. If you're able to um, authorise any research project, what would its focus be? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think I'll, I'll give two examples of kinds of research that I'd like to see and one example of the kind of research that I, I would not want to see. <laughs> um, I would like to see more speculative research about what the university uh, ought to be like in the future and how teacher learning should be like. And not the kind of sort of optimistic perspective that we often see in educational technology literature about the potential of technology, uh, right? But the kind of work that sort of evocatively describes sort of utopian and dystopian perspectives of the institution with the hope of highlighting practices that we should adopt or abandon. Yeah. Um, sort of using that special approach to generate sort of the issues that we're facing right now, but also generate sort of potential solutions to them. Um, I think that would be uh, exciting. Um, I'd like to see more work into flexibility and equity, more work into flexible practices, or I guess practices that institutions uh, have adopted to make teaching and learning more flexible and responsive to students' needs. Uh, and by flexible, I don't necessarily mean, you know, only in terms of time and space, right, which is usually how online learning is described uh, in the literature, but more in terms of flexible assignments and flexible pathways into education, pathways that, you know, um, account for the day-to-day -day realities of people um, in our societies. So say, let's say immigrants who have come to Canada or New Zealand or anywhere else for that matter, um, and are looking for a pathway to employment, how can institutions support them in that, are coming to to our institutions with sort of different credentials or life experiences that we're accustomed to, right? How can we support those people to flexibly um, find employment, say, uh, or pursue, you know, um, education that doesn't necessarily have sort of employment as the final outcome, yeah. um, which ties in, I think ties in with this idea of, of equity in many ways. Uh, but I think overall, historically institutions have been built with sort of the idea that they're the center and, and, and the students you know, go to them to pursue their education studies. And I think we need a more 
sort of societal focused view of institutions that say, okay, the institution is in the center, the students are the center, and our society is the center. How can we design our institutions to serve uh, our society and our students? Mm-hmm. So these are sort of themes that like future research to sort of focus upon, or at least explore a bit more than what I'm seeing right now. The kind of work that I wouldn't like to see is <laughs> is the sort of comparative uh, work that we have seen in the past oh, around mm-hmm. whether one is better than the other, right? <laughs> so, so questions like, well, is online learning better than in-person education? And um, you know that that question I don't think provides. Um, important insights for the difficult work that we have ahead of us. Um, and, you know, if I had access to funds, I would not fund that kind of work. <laughs> um, because I think those questions have been sort of asked and answered uh, over and over. And the kinds of answers that I've seen uh, haven't, at least in my mind, contributed to improved practices. Yeah, true comment. Yeah, I think the standard response to that sort of study is no significant difference, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. that's spot on. <laughs> so, George, you've had a very distinguished career in online education, uh, one that still c- continues to to power on. So, who are two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning? One whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you now, and one who you think otherwise might have an important perspective to share. Mark, you picked the most difficult question to ask <laughs> because um, we don't have time for me to list all of the people that have impacted me in so many different ways and contribute to this vibrant field in so many different ways. Um, and, I'm, and I'm going to leave people out, but I hope that you know our listeners um, understand that, you know, I'm not excluding people by not mentioning people here. Um, I'd like to mention a few names of people that that their work sort of provides new insights for me uh, as an individual and sort of informs my work going forward. Starting from sort of your part of the world, um, Kate Bowles at the University of uh, Wollongong does really good work and what inspires me is sort of her focus on on the student and sort of centering the student and the person. And and Kate's writing is just it's spectacular. Um, and and by reading what Kate writes, um, I'm sort of moved to improve my own uh, writing in different ways, um, and and that's inspiring. Over in the UK, uh, at the University of Edinburgh, there's lots of good work coming out of of that university, and specifically, Sean Bain and Jen Ross do great work around sort of futures of education and some quite recent work. Um, and their manifesto for online teaching and learning is, uh, I think, really significant. Um, they've drawn together lots of threads of work that I think is important and that has existed in sort of, you know, different places here and there. But um, but the way they've crafted that book, I think, is, is really informative, even for people who are new to the field and for those of us who have been in the field for a long time. Um, I think the way they've put together that work uh, is great. 
Um, and finally, recently I've been following more and more the work of Stephanie Moore at uh, New Mexico, and she does some work around ethics, the ethics of uh, sort of instructional design and online learning. And I think that's really important work, and her sort of perspective on ethics is really interesting. So I, yeah. I would encourage you perhaps to explore that work and, uh, and chat with her as well. Mm, excellent. George, it's been really fascinating talking with you. Uh, your work is fascinating. Uh, your perspective is really valued. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a leader and legend of online learning. Thanks for having me, Mark. I really appreciate your kind words. You can learn more about George and his work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com. 